Welcome to Try Not to Blink, a podcast about the ups and downs, ins and outs, news tips and tricks of those who live the optometry lifestyle. We'd like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who have made this podcast possible. They are makers of the stellar gas permeable contact lens you all know and love as the custom stable scleral lens. My name is Dr. James DM. I am on the East Coast in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, and I am here with Roya, Dr. Roya Habibi, somewhere in Central America. Is that where it is? I don't know. Um, anyway, I'm with Roya. What's up, Roya? I mean, lots of I can't remember. Where is it? I think Central and Latin America are like blurred. It's not South America. We are Latin not... America. Is that a thing? Yeah, I mean they like are interchangeable. Latin America. I think I you think... just made that up. No, it covers yes. Central and South America as Latin America. Mm. Oh, but mm. I still have a whole country below me before South America starts. I think we've talked about this before. We have. I bring it up all the time. Um, I just can't get over it. Let's talk one little tidbit of something new you've done in your clinic you are always asking me I this feel like we need and some i can't keep tips. up with it i'm okay. not doing anything new okay i'm gonna think about <laughs> one um i'm kidding with you i'm kidding okay tell um, me one because you know now i'm starting my training program right um we're doing a fe- advanced fellowship program for costa rican doctors at our clinic right it's okay. a year plus long program that we're doing to help oh. connect with optometrists in the community slash help run our clinic. Um, so it. it's a win-win for everyone. But um, so I am trying to, you know, build up my fellowship teaching skills. So I need the right. next topic. You got to get smart about. again. <laughs> I know. Right. What is the most recent thing you've taught your residents? It's always, uh, well, most recently we talked about herpes. Um, okay. We had a patient with herpes. So that's that's always a good one. I feel like you always go over herpes. You always go over, you know, shingles, zoster, oral meds, topical meds, you know. Let's talk zoster always, for a second. I knew you were going to do that. Well, I just want to talk about it for a second. Because uh, yeah. I I was editing my EHR and one of the like thousand milligrams weird, TID no 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 like let's so, get more basic than that so zoster yeah, so. my EHR had like a preset in its vitals on checking for people's vaccination and it's not talking mm-hmm. like COVID vaccination it's talking like every vaccination yeah, and I was like shingles, I don't really yeah. care to ask that but thought about shingles mm-hmm. do you talk to or recommend shingles vaccine to your patients yes. Not what on a regular basis. Not on a regular how, basis, though. Yeah. No. How does it come up, and when do you do it? I when they're when they have shingles. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, did you get the vaccine for this? Uh, if <laughs> Too you late. Think about it. No, I tell them that they could still get it, and that's true. Um, that they could still go out and get the vaccine after that. And then, like, just like for instance, for your parents, but I don't or for proactively families, tell somebody- people. Yeah, I feel like this is probably there's a study for this somewhere. Maybe I'll go look. Oh, definitely. After. Well, it's recommended. It's it's part of I think most primary care doctors spiel's that they do tell people, you know, I and I'm going to I don't know the age. So is it over 50, 60, whatever, high risk, certain levels of high risk, you know, immunocompromised type patients and certain I do I do believe that there is a standard protocol operating procedure, which I'm sure I could Google and figure out. But to answer your question, I don't practically do it. I don't either, but... um, I feel like it's a primary care's job to do that. That's true. But I think for patients that maybe are a little bit more vulnerable, it probably is a smart thing to bring up, or especially if they already have corneal disease. That's a conversation that I, I used to have for people who had... Yeah, you know, um, let's just say like severe dry eye or anything that is like very stressful, because um, you know weakened immunity and weakened immune system is when you tend to have a shingles outbreak, right? Or whatever. So that's another time to like. Hopefully, that'll maybe be a light in your mind to think about recommending it. Anyways, that's my thought of the day. <laughs> What else is going like on? End of, of summer, starting of fall in Hazleton. 
Yikes. Um, hmm. Well, uh, <laughs> we just went to my son's first soccer game, soccer practice, and my daughter is starting kindergarten. So those are pretty big things in our lives that um, don't have anything to do with optometry, but, you know, sometimes that's, you know, that's life, right? So, um, yeah, you know, just uh, that. And uh, we have a, we have a, um, intern that is that was just absolutely fantastic we love her she's she's leaving tomorrow uh shout out courtney and um she is just so good and we we offered her a position and uh we hope that she takes it uh it sounds like she she may and she's very you know very much letting us believe (laughs) that she is thinking to do that i hope that she doesn't hear this and change her mind um (laughs) but uh yeah so we're planning on uh you know maybe a a fourth location and my partner and i had a good long talk about several different options about that today um so yeah i mean we're we're in an interesting environment where there are lots of doctors that are retiring old doctors not a lot of people move into the area doctor wise and so there's there's a ripe for pickings type situation in our area in conjunction with the force of a large private equity that's just kind of you know losing steam and it'll be interesting to see you know how that plays out how that plays out very interesting yeah, well, so we have a try not to stress. Try not to stress. Question. Yeah. Remind everyone what that's about. Well, we want to thank our good friends at OptoPrep. OptoPrep, of course, is a premier boards review program and service that is available to anyone um, who is uh, primarily preparing for their optometric boards. I can vouch for them. I used them way back in the day, and I know that uh, their services are light years beyond light years. Speaking of, that's a great movie. If anybody's seen Lightyear, it's a great new Disney movie. Um, that are light there. It's a night and day difference, all the offerings they have now. But great boards review questions. They have emails, different things that they'll send to you. Um, and so they've teamed up with us to provide a Boards review question to uh, allow you to have one extra opportunity to review your boards and get ready to be the smartest you'll ever be in your life. And then you get dumb again after that. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So this is our try not to stress boards review question of the day. All right. Which of the following conditions is not a relative contraindication to LASIK? Ready, Jimmy? Go ahead. Option one, active ocular disease. Give me like a like yes, no, or not sure sound after each answer, okay? Active uh, ocular disease. Okay. That's a, uh? That's maybe? You don't know? Yeah, I mean, like, okay. that's so vague, you know? Like, this it's just so vague. This is a relative vague. contraindication for LASIK. Relative contraindication. Active okay. ocular disease. Not a relative contraindication. Which is not a relative okay. contraindication. Number two, retinal detachment. Okay. Number three, thin residual corneal beds. Duh. Is that a yes or no? That's a yes. It sounds to me like it's a, that's no good. You don't want to think cornea with LASIK, right? What about that number four? That sounds like a relatively for sure contraindication. Progressive keratoconus. That's an absolute one to me. <laughs> How about number five? Controlled type 2 diabetes. Yeah. And number six, keloid formation. Well, it's a, it's a corneal thing, right? It could be a corneal thing. So I'd say okay. that that's probably... Active, thing, cor- the, the active, active ocular disease, ocular disease was kind of odd to me, but I would say like, yeah, if somebody comes in with a conjunctivitis, even I'm not going to do yes. LASIK. I'm not going to recommend okay. LASIK. So, you know, but the thing that's like, is it glauco- is glaucoma? Is it ocular disease? Yeah. Right. So is that really a I mean, maybe like I would, I would call active like high pressure glaucoma, but I don't know if ocular, maybe they mean ocular infection. 
But that's a good question. That's kind of a maybe. Retinal disease, retinal detachment. But you know what? This is, it brings me back to boards, right? You know, know, you're taking boards and it's like, yeah, these answers aren't always very cut and dry. So you have to kind of work through them yes. to say, well, you know, active ocular disease. I don't like the word active, right? Like that to me is yes. not a good thing. I probably won't want to do surgery on that person. Retinal detachment. Another thing is like, is retinal detachment really a contraindication? You're working on the cornea. Could someone have had a retinal detachment and still have LASIK? Maybe, but probably not. It doesn't seem like a good idea to put pressure on that eye. Um, cornea stuff, which is keloid, corneal thickness, and keratoconus, they're automatically out. So that really just leaves diabetes. And, you know, you could say, well, diabetes causes dry eye, and maybe that's not a good thing, but not in my mind. Uh, that, that to me seems like that would be the winner and be not a relative contraindication. Did you look first? No, I'm talking this out with you. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm good using job. my brains. Snaps. That. Yeah. Was that good? Yeah, that's the answer. Controlled type 2 diabetes is not a relative contraindication to LASIK surgery as long as there is no retinopathy present or recent sh- large shifts or fluctuation in refractive error. Yeah. Type 1, on the other hand, is more of a contraindication. Hmm. He- because of healing? Healing, yeah. And one is a little bit harder to control, I would assume. That's right. not on the answer. That's not on the question. But at least the the cornea surgeons that I've always worked with, um, that's been on their no list. And I've seen um, DALC with patients that were post-LASIK type 1. So. Got yeah. it. Anyways, we got a fun talk today. All right. I am super honored to be able to introduce this guest tonight, um, Dr. Harry Green, who, if you don't know who this is, first of all, shame on you. But second of all, I got a (laughs) notification that (laughs) I was on LinkedIn, which I don't know, I'm like trying to tune into LinkedIn nowadays. Um, But I was on LinkedIn and I got a notification of 13 year anniversary. You know, you work anniversary. Friend anniversary. Friend anniversary. No, no, not like not we've friend been diversity. friends yeah. for 13. No, it's LinkedIn he's been working 13 uh, years oh. at Berkeley teaching. Lucky yeah. number 13. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah, lucky number 13, right? There uh, you go. Not, I mean, it like, okay, rewind. That's not Easter day. That's a, that's a couple, two, three years, as they say in my neck of the woods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's very to great. To give... A little background, aside from, obviously, you teach at Berkeley. So, background, background, you went to Caltech, mm-hmm. got a PhD there in immunology. I did. And while you were finishing your PhD, you decided to overlap and start at UC Berkeley at, in optometry. Yes? That's, yeah, that, well, that's basically how it happened. I, I ended up not actually finishing my dissertation. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, not finishing my dissertation um, before classes started in 2004. So I ended up having to, between the summer of my first and second year, which at Berkeley, we don't have anything for the first years to do. um, I decided to finish my PhD. So I actually ended up uh, going down there. Good use of time. (laughs) Yeah. My my wife certainly thought so. I didn't think so at the time. It was, it was, it was a, a horribly painful process, but I'm glad, I'm glad that it actually ended up uh, working out the way that it did. So I, I ended up actually doing my uh, defense just before the start of second year classes. Uh, and then Caltech only has one uh, graduation a year and we were already through the cycle. So I ended up actually graduating in 2006. So it looks weird on my CV that I graduated my PhD in 2006, but I was in optometry school from 2004 to 2008. <laughs> It but, sounds like uh, you were that, doing a lot of work. Uh, like, why was, was this guy so confused? Like, what was he? <laughs> right? Like, didn't carry the one. Different places, 400 miles apart. What is wrong with yeah. this person? Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it was, it, it, it was kind of funny how it came together, but it really, um, it was one of those things where I, I dedicated myself to, to finishing the PhD, even though I had started down a very different path with eye care. And then, yeah, I... Um, I'm, I'm glad I was able to finish it up, although it was really 
tough at the time. Uh, it's one of those things that you look back in life and you say, hey, you know, if I hadn't done that, things would be very different for me. Because just having a PhD in what I do is um, very, very helpful and opens a lot of doors for sure. Definitely. So what you do do now and for 13 years running, you are obviously teaching at Berkeley. I will mention you took an, a segment to add on to your doctor, PhD, you know, OD, PhD, you got all the Ds and you decided to get your residency also at Berkeley. So now you're officially a Berkeley lifer. You're never leaving. Yeah, no, I, unless they, <laughs> well, they, they try, I, I don't know if they've actually actively tried to get rid of me in the background, but. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not planning on going anywhere. There's no sabotage so. at the moment no, that you no. are aware of. <laughs> um, not that I'm aware. Of. <laughs> Although now, now, now you've made me paranoid. But uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I really, I really love it at Berkeley. I, when I, when I first switched from doing really hardcore science and, you know, that type of research in that type of environment to doing something that was much more patient based, I really, really was you know i was i wasn't let's just say i wasn't in a great place um in terms of you know knowing exactly what i wanted to do other than i wanted to do patient care um, but things really clicked for me probably in my fourth year and it in terms of wanting to do a residency i, I literally i think i applied I started my application like eight days before the deadline or something like that. It was actually all thanks to uh, Glenn Ozawa, which um, for you, those of you who do not know who Glenn Ozawa is, he's a very um, wise figure in Berkeley. And he, uh, he convinced me that doing a residency was the right thing. And when I got into my residency, I actually thought about it. I, I, I asked uh, Chris Wilmer and Mika Moy, who were my primary mentors at the time, I asked them specifically, can I have a, a can I teach? And they're like, yeah, sure. And what I thought that was going to mean is like, I was going to dabble in it and something like that. <laughs> they didn't do that. They, they, they're like, Oh, we need somebody to officially teach on Friday with Mika. So I got, I got, Actually, I put, don't want to teach that class anymore. Can you do this? <laughs> right? Well, I mean, they didn't have a teaching partner and this was, this was all like teaching in the clinic. So it wasn't, I didn't have to do like a ton of, of prep per se, but it was just like, you know, I got thrown into it from day one. Uh, so even in my residency, I was officially teaching one day a week and I really, you know, I really fell in love with it. And that part of my job is still my favorite part of the job. Um, I love seeing patients and I love doing it with students. I love being able to uh, show them how to how to go about doing it right i mean a lot of this stuff is experience but you got to start someplace and totally. i still use the stuff that I, I, I even look back on my own student experience and i still use that um trying to put myself in in their shoes and in, in terms of what they're what they are experiencing and what what i can what i can give to them so that it makes them gain that experience or gain that appreciation for the things that we do much more quickly. What is like just a fun or funny example of like, you know, what if you think kind of epitomizes your favorite part of your job? I don't know. Someone like couldn't figure out something in clinic or looking, thinking it, they were looking at something and they were looking at the wrong, I don't know. Like as your role as a teacher, what's it like a story that can, you can think of that sort of epitomizes like the joy of your job? Um, thinking of an actual specific one on the spot, nah, it's, that one's kind of tough for me. But I will say that in general, like I, I feel like there's when I can show a student disease of any kind, and this, I, I guess it would be, this would be mostly um, anterior segment disease, but specifically the cornea, because as any experienced clinician understands, it is not easy to look at a tissue that is designed by nature to be clear, um, to actually be able to pick up very subtle signs. And in fact, I mean, I just, I just had, it's not really a funny story, but I had that experience with our brand new residents because we just started our residency cycle. Our brand new resident came in, primary care and contact lens resident, 
and we were looking at a, at a patient that had a history of recurrent corneal erosion. And she, you know, when I, when I was talking to her about the case, uh, this patient has had small little episodes and I asked, is the cornea completely clear? Is there any sign of it? And, and the resident in an expected way said, no, I, I, I didn't see anything. And I was able to actually go in there and see some very, very subtle epithelial disruptions um, and be able to talk that through with her. And that's really, that's really what uh, I, I think is uh, the best part of that. Um, unfortunately, I don't have something funny off the cuff. I'm sorry. It doesn't need to be. No, that's perfect. Think. I think. No, I'd I love to be funny. I'd love to be like Carl Jacobson <laughs> where I come out with these wacky ass stories and you're just like, really that? Ooh, really we like happened? that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> It'll come to you later while you're yeah. sleeping at night. Yeah. Honestly, with, with headphones like that, I'm surprised you're not like also getting extra uh, like knowledge is zapped. Into oh yeah. That. Well, it's like, uh, like I said, these were, these are my, um, these are my daughter's gaming headphones. I don't, I, don't, I don't have any, so I'm, I told her earlier. And she's kind of upset, too, because she's like, well, but what am I going to do? I have a game. Right. <laughs> I'm like, you can she's, give them she's up soaking up your bandwidth. <laughs> but yeah, they're okay. ridiculous. I mean, I feel like as the director of UC Berkeley Digital Health, mm-hmm. And the director of the UC Bold program, which Bold. I didn't have at my time. Oh. Berkeley Optometry Online Lectures and Demonstrations. Just fully in the whole I like have to have an acronym for everything thing. <laughs> uh, well, that, that whole thing. Uh, the Bold actually, so I'm, I'm actually no longer doing, we're not doing Bold anymore. It was originally created for glaucoma certification for, for California optometrists. Oh, okay. um, and, and that was, and that was done, that was done um, actually mostly by Patsy Harvey. I kind of inherited it. Um, what I was actually supposed to do was uh, move, was supposed to set up an online uh, continuing education program uh, through a series of unfortunate um, <laughs> circumstances, most of which was that they, wanted me to build an entire online CE program uh, on uh, 20% of my time, which I didn't have anyway. Um, there were no resources or anything like that. The Thankfully, our, uh, our Dean D. Flanagan, he kind of figured out along the way that, oh, this is going to take quite a bit of resources and work. And now, now we have a full-on CE office that like employs like four people and stuff like that. So when I look back on that particular quote unquote failure of mine. I, I think, you know, one person with 20% time that he doesn't even really not have enough. versus like four FTE working on it full time. I, you know, uh, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't my finest moment, but I, I don't, I don't feel too bad about it, but what it still has a catchy little name. Oh, it does. At it least does. You, you, you get that, you get the catchy little name part associated. You know, but the, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say the digital health part. Has been oh, yeah. from my memory, even back at Berkeley, that was like your bread and butter, right? Like that's kind of like your and it, it it really it really has become a, a big part of uh, the school, not only in terms of you know at, before the pandemic, we saw nearly sixty thousand patients in a year. Uh, I mean, we we did that many uh, diabetic retinal consults through the platform, and. Um, the other thing that I'm actually really proud of is, is that I've been able to um, get the the actual curriculum uh, uptake with with digital health. So all third year students actually rotate through a class with Jorge Cuadros, who, who was the original inventor of iPads, um, and so he teaches that with the third year courses, which gives them actually a decent amount of retinal disease. Um, before they even take their disease class. And I was talking to Jimmy about IPACS yeah. and I couldn't remember. He was like, what does IPACS stand for? And I couldn't remember if that was a Berkeley thing or like, what does IPACS stand for? It, well, it stands for I as in EYE. Uh, PACS is a general acronym that they've used for other things for picture archiving and communication system. Is originally, uh, PACS systems were originally the systems that they put together for remote radiology readings. 
And so it became I, because at the time everything was I, uh, not I as in um, <laughs> iPhone, but <laughs> I as in EYE and P PACS is Picture Archiving Communication System. Mm, um, okay. So it sounds it sounds a lot better actually if you just call it iPads, to be honest. Like when you learn the when you learn the acronym, you're like, oh yeah, well that makes sense, but it's not really not as catchy. Well, not I really still like catchy, yeah. so Jimmy. Just for your reference, like I have memories of like sitting in a lecture and they would like have what they do is they they take images through I believe it was like primary care providers, especially in more rural areas. What? And they've now created these algorithms to screen for retinal issues. And you can, um, like, it'll, it'll screen for, um, like, hemes and Irma and all the things. And, but we would also be doing it at the same time, right? So we would kind of audit the algorithm at the time. I mean, I'm sure the algorithm doesn't even need auditing anymore. But we would see if we could catch better than what the screening program did, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's a, it happens in my house too. Yeah, he's uh, looking you're around. You're really hearing all that because I'm about to. No, you're fine. You don't <laughs> need to do like, anything. It's, like, no, don't I, worry about I, it. I we love it. Quiet, we love the we love the real life. Please, yeah. I got a five year old, a four year old, and a one and a half year old. Oh, okay. Sounds so, like yeah, it's sounds like you house. got older ones. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. there are older ones that are currently the instigators. I, I, don't even, I don't even know what they're bickering over, but that's, that's <laughs> right. general life, life goes. man. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. No worries. I love it. It's great. So is it still? Is it still competing with the algorithm or what is it now? Like what well, is... So, so what, what we've, what the, the, the program was always predicated on working with underprivileged patients in community health centers because they don't have the access to care. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't even have access to just sort of basic general eye care with optometry uh, and just retinal screenings in general. And then on top of that, they don't have access to the the actual treatment if they need it which you know a small but important percentage of them do and so what we've done is is we've continued to expand all over california so we have we we work with you know about a hundred and well about a hundred or so uh clinic organizations working at That's about awesome. 220 sites around the state of california all the way from Wairica all the way down to calexico so um, and they, the, the, the photos that they sent into us, you know, we've, we've developed a, a, a solid group of photographers, you know, cause we do quality control with them all uh, and that sort of thing. And then there's a lot more new technology, um, robotic cameras, which actually take really, really excellent images and don't require the user input because as we all know, taking retinal photographs with a fundus camera, uh, when you're really not familiar with the eye or anything like that can be kind of dodgy um, until you get some practice with it. So, and so we're continuing to do that. Um, and what we've, our biggest recent thing with that is um, developing a, a financial model by which they can more easily support their program, um, which doesn't sound sexy and isn't sexy, but has been probably the hardest thing that we've we've done over the years uh, in terms of trying to uh, make the program uh, more sustainable in that, in that clinic uh, population. And that's been our main focus for the last 18 months or so. And the other, the other piece with uh, the school is, is that I've, I'm, I'm now chief of all telehealth services, but there wasn't one before there wasn't you know it's like finishing first place that, in your right? age group when no one else was in the exactly, age group. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in a race that's a, that's a very good analogy um so 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 but now now we're now we're looking into with the pandemic and all and everything like that we're looking into um urgent care triage live urgent care triage with the students and the faculty at school and so that's just sort of adding another dimension uh, to what we do. Um, but as you said before, uh, digital health is still kind of my bread and butter. I, I, I do that 
half the time and I teach half the time in the clinic. And so it keeps me pretty busy. How do you think that with COVID, how has that changed or going changing what telehealth means to eye care? Well, I think it's everything, actually. I think it's been a huge catalyst. And one of the things that I don't think that we probably probably think about on a day-to-day basis, but it has really become apparent, is that it's really hard to do good eye care without a bunch of toys. I mean, we yeah. need to use lots of different pieces of equipment, and we need to use it proficiently, and we need to use it competently. And so having that done on in a remote way is not a simple thing. Uh, right. I mean, with the, with the diabetic retinopathy screening, at least, you know, you have the fundus camera and if you can operate it properly, you can take pictures of what you need to take care of. But if we're talking much more in, in terms of more comprehensive care, that becomes a lot trickier. I mean, you got to yeah. have ultra wide field imaging and you have to have something that can uh, examine the, the anterior segment with enough magnification and enough quality. Um, and, All relying on the patient too, right? I mean, it's not like. Well, and uh, yeah, so I mean, there there are different approaches to it, but you know, I've 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 seen and or heard of approaches where it's kind of all automated. You just stick your chin in in into a machine, and you it hear that thing globe stuff. check. You ever hear that? Yeah, globe yeah, check yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the ones that's 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 automated all together, right? Yeah. yeah, and then there are other there are other systems out there where they actually use a, a, a trained technician to do yeah. a, a bunch of the tests. moving around of things, yeah. yeah, and doing the tests, and then having the doctor on a face to face telehealth remotely, um, and that you know that, but that requires like a whole host of equipment, and it requires all the 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 software bells and whistles in terms of integrating everything so it really is for our our particular subspecialty it's actually not uh not an easy task um so just like with everything else it's going to be baby steps it's going to be the development of new technologies it's going to be the the uh price reduction in technologies that we need to use because we're not going to be able to just, um, you know, if you if you want to be able to spread out and have those kind of places all over the place, you need a lot of technology, even if you don't need a lot of doctors. Um, so it, 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 it's it's going to be a challenge. But um, and I'm working on a couple of different things to get us really in get the school into that space, because I really do think it's an important part of the, the students education too to say, you know, this is this is what you can do with this particular modality. So, for instance, our our urgent care uh, triage thing that's just basically video, um, but it allows the dot well the student and and the attending to connect with the patient in such a way that at least you can do case history and a gross examination, and the, you know, teaching students where are your limitations there. What yeah. what what do you have to depend on? Um, that's, I think you should call it the sty finder. The, the sty. Well, that, that's what it ends up being. Right? <laughs> right. You know, it's like, like is it tender? It's like no, it's this bump on my eye like this, and then you're good. <laughs> Usually, it's like a lot flex. closer yeah, and yeah. a lot blurrier, oh, yeah, yeah. like this. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We uh, there, yeah, like, you know, you're looking up her nose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can only see your nostril. I can't. I can't see your eye. Well, I think, too, a lot of, I mean, A, everyone, including students, already get these phone calls all the time, right? Like their mom or their high school college roommate, like, hey, so I know you're in school right now. Um, So I have this thing in my eye. Could you look at my eye and tell me Mm -hmm. if I should do, you know, like we already do this. And and from from a practicing provider standpoint, we get calls on our lunch break and at, at dinner time and from whether it be family or patients for the same thing. And I think right. so often, not that life is about charging patients, but is about providing the right care and potentially getting paid for that, right? Like, so if you have a telehealth mentality in a sense or an idea of like, how can I 
how can I do this safely and potentially help pay my bills? Right. I think it's a smart way to think. And I think right. too often we just like do it for free and then you complain about it to your spouse or what your your roommate or whatever. Just, oh, I just spent 30 minutes talking to this patient over a subcon team or whatever. I don't well, know. I think there's... It's it's interesting that you bring that up because I was I was actually just at a, a remote conference uh, yesterday, uh, specifically about telehealth, and um, you know one of the one of the speakers was was talking about how a lot of it is actually uh, a lot of what he does, and he does like telehealth for the entire University of Rochester uh, Medical School. So this is like way on a bigger scale than than the stuff that I do, but you know, one of the things that he brought up that was really interesting was he's like, we, we were looking, you know, a lot of this telehealth stuff, we were really looking for oppor- the, the opportunity to save, uh, to either save dollars or generate revenue, but not necessarily, it was more of an opportunity cost. So with the, what he brought up was, was, you know, no shows. Right. And so for, for my money actually, um, and I think that, I think this is uh, this is something I'm seriously considering actually doing. For my money, it's actually better to take a student that has had a no-show. This is just within our own clinic situation. But if you've had a no-show, right, you're sitting there not making any money. So you you're available to take that sort of call, and because it's not like is a lot of it is just case history. And again, sort of gross examination over video um, that might be grainy or you might be looking up their nostril or whatever. Yeah. You know, it, 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 to me, it actually makes more sense rather than at least in the U.S. healthcare uh, milieu. It makes a lot more sense actually to just say, you know what, just pay me 10 bucks <laughs> and just, you know, I mean, it's not, I'm not going to do all this insurance nonsense. I'm not going to do em3 with a whatever i'm i'm just going to charge you a reasonable amount of money to do this um and that way we can at least start your care right and if we have to finish it it also helps me because if we have to finish that care today i'll be able to figure that out or maybe it makes it easier on my staff um uh and me specifically if i push that off and they say, you know what, we can see you tomorrow for that, no problem. Or we can see you toward the end of the week. Uh, totally. And so it really allows you to to increase your efficiency. But also I do think that if you keep the price of it to a reasonable extent, I mean, the patient's gonna pay that much for copay anyway, right? So Absolutely. why not just say, you know what, but just pay us flat 10 bucks for a telehealth, urgent telehealth consult. Um, and I, I do think that it'll be a lot easier for folks to swallow that rather than if you're insured, we'll try to bill your insurance, but it, and you'll have a copay, but yep. if we can't, then you'll be charged. It just, yep. you know, that really, I think that at least as me as a health consumer, that really ticks me off. Yeah, no. And I think too, as a health consumer, I was sitting at dinner recently with my, with my family. My mother-in-law was like, so I just had this like great thing with my healthcare provider and I just like pay I don't even remember she said 30 bucks and she sent in my prescription for my, I don't even remember what the problem was like, whatever, elbow pain or something. It wasn't a pain medication, but the point is she just had a phone call that was cheap and easy and for her life and her lifestyle, that's what she wanted. Right. And I feel like a lot of people, especially post COVID are just like down to have a phone call. And then if they want more, they come in. Right. But they like, it's, it was a huge benefit to her to not have to go somewhere. Yeah. So I think offering that in eye care is a weird thing because we can't totally do that, but we can screen a lot and we do already screen a lot. Well, and I actually think that if done responsibly, and this is actually coming from, because I'm always thinking about where students are coming from, which is a place of being absolutely, you know, just naive about clinical work in general. But, you know, I, I've, through doing some of these, the, these urgent consults, there's actually plenty of times when I feel like, you know what, that's just, that's a preceptal cellulitis, and I just base that on gross exam, and and uh, and case history. Um, obviously, if something seems weird, it seems up, I wouldn't do that, right? But there's an right. awful lot of opportunity there, I think, 
for, and again, this is sort of experience-based, so for our younger clinicians out there, you know, it's, it's something that you may or may not feel comfortable with, but that's, that's just clinical work in general. You have to, you have to grow with your experience. Um, and it really, you, I, I do think that we can do a lot more than we think we can. I think that if you actually get into the weeds with this, you'll find that you can actually do, you can, you can discern when, when you're comfortable with it and when you're not. And you can actually, like I said, I've, I've prescribed eye med or eye or oral meds um, because, you know, it was, it was a slam dunk cut and dry kind of thing. Uh, and there's always that balance though with telemedicine is that you can't put patients at risk. And so it is, it, it's actually gonna, I think it's gonna be a big question in the future. It's like, where do you draw the line? Where does that standard, where is that standard? Um, and you just gotta watch, uh, from personal experience with the digital health program uh, in particular, and looking at other digital uh, or diabetic retinopathy screening programs that are remote like we do, it's definitely something where there are definitely some people out there that are just about making money and not really caring so much about actually taking care of people. Um, okay. But there, I think there's an awful lot of that in the non-telehealth world. So it's, it's just something to be aware of and keep an eye out for. To concentrate. <laughs> Ideally. Ideally. <laughs> So let's let's get into some some basics here about diabetes. I know that uh, you know a lot of our our fans here are treating the beatus on a regular basis, and uh, you know it's good to do a little refresher. Um, so we are going to ask you some some basic questions here to help refresh our guests as it relates to diabetes and some basic knowledge they need to know. So let's review the stages of diabetic retinopathy. I know you're probably thinking, Jesus, this is... This is <laughs> no, I got to do it all the time. It's fine. It's like fresh year. off the top of my head. Go. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, Go. So, and give a little little piece of why it's clinically important. Why do we Yeah, care? I like that part. So, so the, uh, I mean, diabetes in general as a disease is the uh, inability for the blood, the body to regulate blood glucose. And there's a, there's two different forms. There's type one, which is insulin dependent, which means your body doesn't make enough or any insulin uh, and you have to supplement it or type two, which is the more common cause, at least in Western societies with our diet, um, which is a insulin resistance where the, where the body makes enough insulin, but the muscles don't want to uptake the insulin and the glucose. So that leaves the blood sugar high. Uh, and ultimately that causes uh, damage to capillaries and the retina happens to be one of the densest areas of capillary uh, bed in the entire body. Um, and structure and function also are very, very important in the retina. And so what you end up seeing is you end up seeing uh, those, those small little capillaries having dysfunction. They stop working altogether, so there's no blood flow through them. Or they only kind of stop working, so they, they start to leak all over the place. Um, and so the, the, the initial changes that we see in the retina uh, are generally microaneurysms, which are small little aneurysms. I mean, they're called micro for a reason. They're teeny tiny aneurysms of the capillaries um, and there's a couple there's a debate as to exactly what the physiology is but uh, you see these small little round like lesions start developing in different places in the retina and almost the entirety of the action in diabetic retinopathy is going to happen within within the posterior pole or maybe just outside the arcades um, that's where most of the 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 capillary bed is, you know, most of the capillaries are and where they're the densest. And so after those initial microaneurysmal changes, then you start seeing, in addition, the blood vessels starting to leak. And they leak two things. When they leak just a little bit, it's all the serum components out of the blood. So the, they're, they're starting to get small little compromises, but they're not large enough for blood to actually exit the, the um, the vessel, and then you get full-on 
uh, breaches where there's actually blood cells leaking out into the retinal tissue. And almost for the most part, the, 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 the pathology is limited to the inner retina because that's where the capillary beds are and where they're the densest. So you get bleeding, you get exudation, you get, you get that serum uh, component leakage. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what we consider sort of in the moderate uh, uh, phase. You can also get uh, cotton wool spots, which are um, on, they're basically a micro infarct of the, of the um, nerve fiber layer in a very small little localized area. And there are these fluffy things, right? So we call them cotton wool spots. So that's all sort of in the moderate domain. And then after a lot of damage over a long period of time, we start seeing actual vascular changes in the retina. And they're actually, they're, they're an attempt for the retina to actually reperfuse itself because a lot of these blood, a lot of these capillaries just shut down. They're not actually pumping any blood through them and the tissue needs it. And so, it's the, the IRMA, which is the intra-retinal uh, vascular, microvascular uh, abnormalities, they, um, they are trying to basically bypass the little capillary beds. That's why they got that really squirrely looking, uh, um, Jorge Quadras calls it chicken scratch. It kind of is like that, right? Just like little, little uh, as if somebody came through there with a, a crayon and, like a kid came through with a red crown and kind of squiggled in there. Um, and then ultimately there's so much, there's, there's so little oxygen and nutrients getting to the tissues that they start to crank out uh, uh, mostly, well, they're, they're angiogenic factors. The big one is VEGF and the, the vessels, uh, new vessels actually start to grow and they grow on the surface of the retina. And so there's, there's, and, and that's, that's, the, the development of Irma, and we also see what we call venous beading, which is a, a micro, uh, well, it's a, it's a localized expansion of the, uh, of the veins that causes it to look so like a sausage link. Um, those are the more severe, uh, what we call pre-proliferative signs. And then when the blood vessels actually start to grow, uh, which we call retinal neovascularization, that then actually... Um, can eventually cause enough fibrous tissue to form such that it starts to pull the retina off the back of the eye and cause attractional detachment. Uh, and about 50% of vision loss is due to that type of pathology. And the other 50% is, um, is diabetic macular edema, which is, that's a big deal. So you don't really actually have to be in any one of those you can be anywhere from moderate through proliferative and any swelling in, in, in and around the fovea uh, could be very damaging to vision. And again, it kind of comes back to that structure versus function. So those are the two main ones. And then there's, there's also neovascular glaucoma, which is absolutely visually devastating. But that one, that one thankfully doesn't happen um, very often. I mean, we, we certainly see it, but it's uh, when there's enough VEGF actually that it diffuses to the front of the eye. There's neovascularization of the angle structures and eventually it zips the eye shut and you get a really high pressure. Tell me, this is a stupid question, but now, you know, so now you're in a practicing world, you see people that have, you know, proliferative or post-proliferative, right? They've had their PRP, whatever, yeah. all that stuff. Do you ever go down in severity? Uh, actually, you know, that's, like, an, that's an excellent are, question. When you're billing when, or coding. Yeah, no, I, no, I do. Um, it is possible to reverse up to moderate. So moderate, uh, you know, the, the, the exudation, the bleeding, the cotton wool spots, the microaneurysms, those are actually reversible. And so okay. you can, with good enough blood sugar control over a long enough period of time, you can actually see that stuff go away. Okay. So, but when you're starting to see the more severe lesions, when we use, you know, what we call the four, two, one rule, which is four, four quadrants of, of hemorrhage, uh, intraretinal hemorrhages or two quadrants of venous beating or one quadrant of, of Irma, those are, those 
those last two, the Venus being and the, and the Irma, those are not things that go away. And so they're, they're actual changes, physical changes to the retina. And then obviously neovascularization is, you know, also essentially a permanent change, even though you can get the, the vessels themselves to regress with treatment, you'll still have the fibrous tissue left behind from the scaffolding where the blood vessels were growing. So I would say, yeah, you can, but only up to a certain point. Uh, there are reversible changes in the body can actually repair that damage. But at a certain point when it's been there long enough or severe enough, yeah, you're not going to go down. And then this is even more technical question, but in the sake for like billing, actually, like when you choose what code am I going to use? Once you've had proliferative as a diagnosis. Yep. You're no longer proliferative anymore. You've had treatment, whatever. Right. But do you get rid of that diagnosis ever? No, no. I, I, I don't think it's, like, like I said, there's, there's always going to be some remnant the damage of that is severe of disease, yeah. even though, even if you're not, even if you're not seeing active blood vessel growth, the, the fibrous proliferation, in fact, you know, you, you're still at risk if you have a lot of fibrous proliferation, but you've been treated such that the vessels themselves have regressed the fibrous proliferation actually will continue to be contractile. So it'll actually, it actually can continue to move toward tractional detachment. Um, yeah. Doesn't happen in everybody, but generally speaking in my discussions with retinal specialists about this is that once you're, once you're at the severe level or higher, you're not really going to, even if you've been treated, you're not really going to decrease that. Um, can you hear that in the background or are they? Okay. No. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, that's, that's actually your blood glucose always going. Nah. Okay. No, 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 it's, it's somebody making a, a racket, but I didn't, at least they're not throwing stuff at each other this time. That's um, all right. You know, so, the, the current phase of our world that we live in with relation to any sort of neovascular disease in the eye is injections, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're entering a brave new world of injectable medicines for geographic atrophy. It's coming mm -hmm. out with complement inhibitors, and that's very exciting. Um, but we certainly are all very familiar now as basically standard of care for neovascular disease uh, for anti-VEGF uh, VEGF inhibitors. So... Tell me about your thoughts and or, you know, what you're teaching to your students about when we start to introduce anti-VEGF treatment to the diabetic patient, because I, I think this is something where the paradigm continues to shift. Um, the discussion continues to grow and the evidence, I think, is not 100 percent you know, supportive in all, in the vast amount of literature that exists out there as to when exactly we do this. Um, so what do you, what do you think about that? Um, I think that, I think that anti-VEGF therapy has been um, just an absolute boon in the, in, in the eye care space. I mean, we all, we all know it. We've seen it since it was introduced as something for, for neovascular um uh, AMD. And when it comes to diabetes, there actually has been a fair amount of work done by the DRCR net, um, which is sort of, a it's a consortium basically of, of clinics or medical centers around the, the country that have run a number of, of uh, federally funded trials. And it's something that we actually really need just as an aside. I mean, it's, it's the, the amount of money being poured down these anti-VEGF therapies really isn't very sustainable. And so to have, the, to have uh, a, an independent network actually looking at the cost-benefit ratios associated with those treatments is really important as, you, as we see the medications being used in things like diabetic retinopathy, which is really, really uh, prevalent, obviously, and a really big public health issue. But at the same time, since there are so many people afflicted, you're talking about doing injections on people. And it's not a permanent, it's not a permanent fix. We all know that these patients need to have multiple injections. 
over long periods of time for their chronic disease. Um, most of that work has actually been done with diabetic macular edema. Um, I think it's I think it's always been kind of a no-brainer that if you use an anti-VEGF therapy in an eye that has proliferative retinopathy, you're going to get regression of that proliferative retinopathy. Um, but it's not a very permanent fix. Um, and but PRP, that, that, and I so, think there, I think the, but the thing is, the companies say, but wait a second. We got those people where you all believe and we do that that's good. That's going to help them. But let's push it one step further. Mm-hmm. right? Let's go to the non-proliferative patients. Right. Let's. Oh, right. right? No, that's, yeah, that's because there's a lot that's more a of those. Right. And if we stop them there, then they don't get proliferative. Right? right. That's the. Well, right. So shouldn't you optometrists be referring your non-proliferative patients for injections? No, you're, you're absolutely right. That's actually something that's come up, uh, especially in the last couple of years with some of the work from the DRCRnet that has, right. that has been, that has shown that uh, even patients with moderate are, are, uh, um, can have benefit and you have lo- lower rates. Here's the, here's the thing um, with that particular issue is that um, it's actually, so, so if, you, if you look at the actual uh, data and research, it's late moderate. It means that people are really just They've really about sliced to it up. They, yeah, they, and, they made up a new category. To right, say. Right, right, right. Well, yeah. and, and for good reason. Like mild is this over here, and then severe and proliferative is this over here, and then moderate is defined like this. And so, I think we will actually start seeing those kind of uh, uh, of changes to the way that we actually classify right. the disease because I I personally believe moderate can go from a couple of different small little hemorrhages and maybe some exudation to, you know, nearly to the severe stage. Right. And that's, that's a big, that's a big wide gap to, to kind of fill with one, with one diagnosis. So I I think that we will see those changes and, you know, is there, is there value in, in the, I mean, the research would suggest that there's value in treating those patients. But another thing that they, they also do with, at least the DRCRnet does, is they do a cost-benefit ratio, mm. like they do a cost-benefit analysis as part of it because Lucentis and Ilea and all the anti-VEGFs, they're, they're just ridiculously expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think actually, personally, going back really, if you, it, it, going back to the history of, uh, of those medications is, is that Avastin was originally uh, an anti-cancer um, drug, right? I mean, it, yeah, was, it was an anti-angiogenic where the idea was you starve the solid, t- you, you, you don't allow new blood vessels, so you starve the solid tumor, you shrink it down, you cut it out. Um, and it hasn't worked out 100% that way for all cancers, but it certainly was huge in that toolbox, but it takes a decent bolus of that stuff to have an effect systemically. Well, it turns out then that they can't say that, you know, a few, uh, you know, a few milliliters of this stuff costs, you know, there's like 200 microliter injections into the eye. Right. And they can't say, Oh, that times, you know, 25 to, to do a systemic treatment. Oh, you owe us $30,000. So it, you know, it, it, Avastin had to be priced in a, in a way that it was not absolutely ridiculous. And then, of course, people got smart and they say, well, why don't we just try this thing where if we just take a teeny bit, like $60 or $100 worth of it, we can inject it. And I actually think that if the anti-VEGF drugs are going to be used on a broader basis, I think it's going to be in the form of Avastin. I don't really think that it either that or, or the, the, the price of those other um, forms of the drug have to come way down because you just can't treat that many people. It's just not sustainable. Totally. Okay. To shift off of a, you know, more like entry level question. Okay. <laughs> you got a patient in front of you. They're like, doc, I don't feel like I have diabetes. <laughs> why is this a problem for my eyes? Why do you care? Right? Like why not like necessarily need to go into like all the pathophysiology of why it affects the eye, but like why, what's your like little elevator pitch to your patients on like why they should care? Uh, I, I, I like to use pictures actually. Um, 
So one of the things that I really learned about diabetes in general, and this is actually the case with a lot of the chronic diseases that we see, um, hypertension is another great example. The patients don't feel bad until they either have a catastrophic event or they get to really severe end stage disease where things are happening like neuropathy and they're getting like diabetic foot ulcers and having amputations and, and that sort of thing. For much of their disease course, they don't feel bad. And so they're just like, you know what, they tell me this stuff, but you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna eat all my carbs that I love and I'm gonna have ice cream and all that kind of stuff. And it's not, and, and so connecting with their disease is a huge uh, compliance issue. I mean, it really is. Why do people go to the dentist? They go to the dentist for their six month cleaning if they're, you know, responsible about their teeth and, they, and, and they're doing that, or they go because they're in a godly amount Two of pain. Hands. Right. And I mean, pain is the motivator, right? There so you if you have pain, they're going to go and they're going to have it fixed. If they don't feel anything, they're just like, well, how bad could it really be? I don't I feel fine. And, <laughs> and so connecting with their disease is really difficult. But if you take a picture of a normal retina and then you show, uh, you show a picture of somebody who has even mild disease. I mean, I, I don't know that mild is as impactful because showing them little red dots on a retina, I don't know. But moderate disease when there's all kinds of different colors in there, right? <laughs> there's red, there's white, there's yellow. Um, they they kind of get it. They're like, really? That's all going on. They They take things much more seriously if you can actually get them to connect with their disease and thankfully with the eye it's not only one of the earliest forms of of uh end organ damage that starts to manifest that in the kidneys um it's also something that we can take beautiful color photographs of relatively easily um yeah. and so we actually do that like with a digital health thing we actually encourage the primary care docs to to do that with their patients is to is to get them to see this damage is happening. This is your eye. This is your vision. And again, once it's past the moderate level, there's plenty of stuff that I think that just a normal lay person can really understand that normal and me and me does not look normal. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I really, I think that that's actually the most powerful way to get through to diabetic patients. Are you going to get through to all of them? No. Yeah. A lot of them are just going to be like, yeah, well, I mean, eh, so there's a little blood, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot of them, it, it is really, really impactful. Um, and, you know, when, you, when you're telling the patient, look, I, I see this little area here. It's really close to the center part of your vision. And if that actually swells too much, you're going to start losing your vision and it's not going to come back. Um, I think that, that it's pretty powerful. Totally. You know, so visual I like that. There is something about at my last clinic, once we got our optos that made like, you know, taking a picture night and day. Oh, yeah. It is just so fun to see, show someone even a clear retina. Because yeah, sure. everyone's like, that's my eye. Like, yeah, it's just so fun. It, that so. looks like something off an alien planet. And then, yeah, it does. <laughs> it's outer and, space. And I love course, when people say that. Of course. You and I and Jimmy and all of your listeners, I mean, most of your listeners, I would assume are, are optometrists. We all, we all appreciate it for what it is, but I, I, do, I do think it, uh, it, we can pr produce some pretty awesome looking things that people think, wow, that's really, that's what it looks like. Um, totally. And I get, that I, I get that reaction all the time. Totally. That is fun. Well, that was great. Thank well, you so much. I think much. we do have one last question. Though, oh my God, right? I do. Don't, don't stop. Oh my fighting children? <laughs> it no. might be. No, you it's not it in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We have a question. We didn't do any of our normal little fun questions. We just oh. got too distracted tonight. I'm, I'm, but uh, I'm sorry. I'm way too no, much we, You were too much fun all fun. on your own. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that works for me. I liked you. See, it's true. <laughs> exactly. It's just facts. No, but we ask one and the most important question to all of all of our guests, okay. and we like to ask what your spirit animal is. This is the animal that defines your personality for sure. Ooh, Wolverine <laughs> oh, never had that one. You're the first Wolverine. I like it. Oh, really? Why? Oh, okay. yes. Why? Uh, uh, yeah, the well, so 
Me too. First, my my my, uh, my first love of the world Wolverine came from a childish fantasy that comes with the X Men, right? I mean, X Men, like obviously, is like awesome, right? Right. Um, and you know, based on my headphones, you can tell that that's the kind of person <laughs> I am. But um, I got into I got into watching these shows uh, like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Alone. Alone. Um, the Wolverine is I'm a like savage. hooked on alone right now. Right. Hooked. Right. It, it is this just absolutely, it looks like a cute little badger, but yes. is apparently like, will take on a like full size bear. Um, <laughs> yes. And I, I just think that's freaking awesome. Um, and that's you. So, yeah, I mean, I, well. You're I taking am, on the bear. I am the size of a full size bear, but oh. uh, <laughs> but, but I, I do have I do have some spirit, especially if somebody pisses me off. I like that. I like that. The nice. Underestimated, the <laughs> underestimated creatures. <laughs> yeah, it's an underestimated creature. Love it. Except by those who know, and then there, it's a highly respected creature. <laughs> Mic drop. On that note. <laughs> Thank you for joining uh, us. You're welcome. I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, this was really fun. Well, that's it. Before we go, reach out to us for feedback, questions, th- stories, things you want us to talk about, either through email or on our Instagram or Facebook. We never depart without saying thanks to Valley Contacts, both for the amazing lenses they make and the great people they are to work with. And be sure and tune in and listen to our next episode. But until then, try not to blink.